Okay, so I um, would like to ask your prayers. Uh, I've got a lot of scripture, and it's very, um, it's not the easiest scripture. <laughs> um, and uh, there's all kinds of imperfections in me about choosing a text each Sunday and trying to explain a text. Um, but God's bigger than that, and I super need his help, super extra duper. Uh, I want to serve you guys, and I want to fear the Lord. And um, I'm just super aware of his, my need for his help in this journey where we're going to try to take through his word uh, this morning. So would you, guys, would you guys pray with me as I pray? Lord, I want to thank you, God, for the prayer I just got from uh, Mike and Pam and, um, I'm sorry, Mike and Kim. And I just pray, God, that you would please, Lord, bless the preaching of your word. Please anoint your words, Lord. I thank you that they have been speaking to my heart, um, speaking to my weaknesses, my sins, my imperfections. I pray, God, that they would speak encouragement, correction, admonishment, comfort, all the ways that your word needs to speak to us in our different journeys, in our different places in our lives right now. I pray your Holy Spirit would do that. God, as we've been saying so much for several weeks now, in your son we have a husband redeemer who nourishes us and cherishes us, who cleanses us by the word, who never stops interceding for us. Lord, may we experience his perfect, perfect husbanding today over our souls as his bride. I pray this, God, for your glory and for your good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I have been thinking and reading a lot about Josh Harris this week. Um, raise your hand if you don't know about what's going on with Josh Harris the last couple of weeks. Okay, so pretty much everybody knows that Josh Harris, and if you don't know, I'll sum up, has announced that he's going to divorce his wife and he is no longer a Christian. And um, <clears throat> I went to his church for um, about a year and a half um, when I was a student at the Sovereign Grace Ministries Pastors College, and it was, it was that church that planted our church long ago. Um, and, um, and I didn't know him too well personally. I did do a missions trip with him, and I knew him some. We, we spent one afternoon playing tennis together and talking and, um, a couple of years ago, 2014 or 13, I think it was. Um, but his departure from the faith and from his wife, but even more from the faith um, because it's so stunning, to see someone not just say they're getting a divorce, but they're also renouncing Christ, who, who is a person who's pastored for years, written books for years, um, and been so, at least outwardly, committed to God and his word. And from every account of anyone I've ever talked to who's known Josh, has been virtually unassailable in his character. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about Josh Harris. And some of you have too. I know that because I've talked to some of you. And some of you haven't been thinking. For some of us who knew or were influenced by him, the gut punch in the soul kind of continues. That's the way it's felt for me. It's felt like somebody just came over and, and punched me in the, in the gut of my soul, and I'm still trying to recover. 
um, for others, either you didn't know him or you're just able to process in, in, in a less emotional way than I am. And to you, uh, it, it's just what happens. You know, as Jim said last week, the history of the church is replete with apostasy of people who say they know Christ, but they don't really, of people who say they're committed to Christ, but then leave him. Uh, Jesus told us in his word, many will fall away. And our Lord qualified true saving faith as that which lasts when he said, he who endures to the end will be saved. But, but even if you're not thinking of Josh Harris this morning, the issues around Josh Harris, the issues of apostasy, of leaving the faith, the issues of the nature of saving faith versus counterfeit, of how to navigate our own personal struggles with faith and with failure, these have the utmost relevance to us, whether we've ever heard the name Josh Harris or not. I want to come back, therefore, to Josh Harris, not the person, but the issues surrounding him of falling away, of perseverance. And there's a book in the Bible that deals with those issues more intensely and more thoroughly probably than any other book I know, and that's the book of Hebrews. And before Jim planned to, before we knew anything else about apostasy going on last week in our circles, Jim had chosen Hebrews 4 to talk to us about last week. And if you haven't heard Jim's message, please go back and listen to it. Um, I, I found it to be a, a tremendously helpful message. Um, but I'm going to go back to the heart of where Jim was in Hebrews 4. We're going we're to take a, a bit of a bigger chunk on it, and we're going to talk about some of the same issues from, from a little bit of a different angle. So our text today specifically is Hebrews um, 9 through 16, but we're going to deal with really uh, a wider context, Hebrews 3 and all of Hebrews 4, um, be, because of the issues we want to look at in the specific part of the Bible we're going to look at in Hebrews, in the passage I'm looking at, are really better understood in, in the wider picture. I mean, ideally, we would be, you know, talking about this chapter in the middle of a series on Hebrews, and you'd have all these different points to connect things. So there's a lot of text today um, to consider. But I'm going to start with verse 9. I'm going to read through 16, and, uh, and then we'll start to unpack it from there and see where the Lord takes us. Starting in verse 9, I'll read through 16. Um, Logan, can you locate verse 9? This is chapter 3. It starts, so then. You should have the attachment. Do you not have it there? Okay, can you hit refresh and see if it comes up? Yeah, chapter 4, I'm sorry. Okay, so if... If we don't have it, we're going to go super AD 33 old school, and you guys are just going to hear it. <laughs> but if you have your Bibles and you can open it up to Hebrews 4, um, that would be great. But if God could work through the reading of his letters to churches, some of whom couldn't read, he can work through this. Um, but So you refresh and it's not there? Okay, I'm sorry. All right, guys, sorry. There's going to be a lot of text to listen today. So those of you who are not audio learners as much as visual, I apologize. Um, and hopefully there's a, a Bible on your phone or in your, uh, in your laps that you can use. So reading from verse 9 through 16 of chapter 4. <clears throat> so then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works 
as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is a thick passage from a thick book. Hebrews is a difficult book to understand. It is a book, however, that God gave us to understand. Theologians have been wrestling with this book since it was written, but God is unashamed to give us this book because we need it, and we need to seek and strive to understand it. But one of the reasons why it can take um, a lot to understand Hebrews is because Hebrews takes issues that we often think of simplistically, like salvation and faith and Christian and non-Christian and conversion, and it asks us to wrestle with them deeply and carefully by making statements that seem to be intention and sometimes in contradiction with our presuppositions about what it means to be saved, what it means to not be saved, what it means to have the Holy Spirit or not. And, and in the case of what it means to truly believe in a saving way and to keep believing in a saving way and to endure to the end and not fall away and lose our salvation or to not have been saved to begin with, depending on whether you're looking at this from one theological angle or another, what it means to not end up lost and in hell, what it means to enter into God's safety and his salvation forever. Hebrews is all about these things, and, and we want to wrestle, and we want to think deeply and think carefully about these things because the stakes could not be higher. Right? I mean, this is why we are sitting in a church on Sunday morning. Like, you're not here to, to have exciting music and to have people smile at you and to eat yummy food. Like, right? Like, that's not the main goal of being here. All those things can be nice and they can be great and they can be gifts of God. But folks, we are here. We are here to follow God and to hear his word and to keep paying attention to him because he says there's a judgment coming, because he says we need his salvation, because he says he's holy and he's, gonna, he's going to look and evaluate at our hearts, and he says that we need a covering in Jesus Christ for our eternal life so that we might eternally be safe in his presence, so that we might not eternally perish and be damned. That's why we're a church. 
that's the crux of everything we do. The crux of everything we do really boils down to the fact of eternal things. Salvation or condemnation. And so, difficult passages, difficult questions, difficult verses that really, really struggle, that really, really make us struggle in our hearts with questions that we don't want to ask or things we don't want to look at or things that might make us worried or fearful or if they're in God's word, if they're in a book like Hebrews, we do well to engage and struggle with these things because they're of utmost importance, because your eternal soul is of utmost importance to you and where it goes is of utmost importance to you and to those you love. So without further ado, we're going to get into this. And we're going to deal with these questions that the passage today is going to confront us with. So I'm going to start with verse 9 and come back um, and take this verse kind of section by section a little bit. Starting in verse 9. So there remains, oh, there it is. Praise the Lord. Thank you, God. Let's go to verse 9. It, there it is. So then, take a look at verse 9 here. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works just as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And that's the title of my message today, so that no one may fall. So I want to take a look at this question that the very first verse poses to us in in verse 9, anyway, and ask, what in the world is God talking about when he says a Sabbath rest? What's the Sabbath rest that we're called into? First, it's a rest that God says is a rest that... that is characterized by resting from our works. So that's a, big, that's a big key to the whole book of Hebrews. The rest that God's calling us into is a rest from our works. Verse 10, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Why is he saying a rest from works? And to understand this, we need to see again and again that, that God uses all kinds of things he's created. And we've we've been talking about marriage a lot and talking about how marriage is is one of the ways that God wants to teach us about his love for us as his bride. And and the author of Hebrews is doing that again here. He's using the seven days of creation and the concept of rest and the Sabbath day to point to himself, to point to who he is and what he wants to give us. Specifically, he's pointing to Christ. And the rest of salvation that we have in him by faith, when we cease trusting in ourselves for our salvation and depend and put our hope in him alone, that's called the rest of faith in some terminologies. And so this promise of rest is pointing to the promise of rest from our works to earn or be worthy in ourselves of God's salvation. It's the rest we have by trusting in Christ to be for us and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And the author's also alluding to the, the rest of the promised land to make another metaphor for us when the Hebrews were led by Moses in the desert. So we're going to see that jumping out in this text as well. But on the seventh day, the author says, God rested. And in the, tenth, in the Ten Commandments, God provides rest for the Hebrews when he says in the seventh day, you're going to rest. So this author is telling us that is a picture of salvation. It's a picture of rest from trying to be and do what only Christ can be and do for us. And so the Hebrews author is explaining that Jesus is the ultimate picture of what the Sabbath law of rest was pointing to. 
He uses the day of Sabbath in the Mosaic law as a metaphor for the rest of works for someone who trusts in Christ. We are to rest from our works for salvation just as the Jews rested from their labors on the seventh day. We are to put our hope only in Jesus Christ to secure our salvation before God. And so in the wider context of this book, you'll see the author calling people away from putting any hope in the Old Testament system of animal sacrifices. If you know Hebrews broadly, you'll see the big theme. Putting any hope anymore in the Hebrew priests that God had set up to point to Jesus. And for ourselves, it's putting our hope more, more broadly, putting our hope not in ourselves, but in Jesus. So I think you guys get that point. I'm starting to realize I'm, I'm going over these same statements and again, but that's okay if I repeat things because at least I need them repeated. <laughs> Number two, it's a rest which we cannot enter by unbelief. It's okay. Th these are not the application points at the end, Logan. I appreciate you trying. Um, these are part of the text. I'll, I'll, when I get to the end, I'll say, and now for some application points, and I'll take you through those one by one. But right now, if you would, it, when I'm hitting verses, you can just be there. That would be great. So the second thing I want to say about this rest is it's a rest that we cannot enter by unbelief. It is a rest we cannot enter by unbelief. That is one of, if not the most important things that Hebrews is trying to tell us and that I could say to you this morning. The rest of salvation that God calls us to is something we cannot enter by unbelief. At the top of Hebrews 4, in verse 1, the author writes this. Let's go back to 4.1. Therefore, go back to Hebrews, there you go. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have fa failed to reach it. For the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. So the author is referencing here the Hebrew people of the Exodus journey, who, when God told them, the promised land was theirs for the taking if they would trust him for it and fight with faith in his promise. They did not believe him. They refused to enter the land. They were fearful of the enemies of God and said that <laughs> even though God said that he would be with them and he would deliver them if they would trust in him and fight by faith. It's a tragic thing to read in Exodus. I think it's Exodus 19 as God is after he's taken them on this journey, all the things he's done in the, in the miracles of Exodus and splitting the Red Sea apart and the, the firstborn of Pharaoh's dying and all the ways he's, he's delivered them again and he brings them to the boundaries of the land and he says, this is your land now, take it, take it, take it. It's yours, believe me, trust me. And they say, no, it's gonna be too hard for us. And God doesn't slam the door in their faces. He tries to encourage them. He says to them, he pleads with them, do not be in dread or afraid of them. This is God speaking to them as they're resisting him and saying, I don't believe you. They actually tell God that he hates them. He they tell God that he hates them and he's brought them out to kill them. It's, it's just absolutely mind-bogglingly tragic. Here he is trying to fulfill all his purposes for him and at the, at the very, very, very boundaries of receiving the land, they tell him he hates them. He doesn't love them. And he's brought them out here to kill them. And he pleads with them. He says, do not be in dread or afraid. Do not be in dread or afraid of them. 
The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you. Oh Lord, let this pierce my heart. Let this pierce our hearts. He says, how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. All the way that you went until you came to this place. It is so easy for my heart and my eyes to miss the deep devotion that God has for me as we, we've been talking about our husband redeemer and the love that God communicates for us in Hosea and other places in Ephesians 5. Well, here's another place. God pleading with his people who are telling him, you hate us. He's saying, I carried you like a, my son in my arms. Don't refuse this. But they refused. And then God was angry with them. And in his anger, he judged them and held them back from the promised land until they had all died in the desert and it was their children who entered in. So we see from the author of Hebrews that unbelief prevents us from receiving what God gives us. Another thing to mark this rest, it's a rest that's in contradiction to sin. It's a rest that's in contradiction to sin. There are different ways that, that Paul and different authors try to help us understand that while we're saved by grace, and while we're not saved by what we do, while we're saved by faith, and it must be by faith, it must be by dependence on him, the miracle of salvation always issues in a changed heart and a changed life. The faith, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther said, the faith that saves, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And so the Hebrews author is trying to tell us that one of the marks of saving faith is that it does not represent a life characterized by domination to sin. And so he says in verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Israel failed to enter in because of unbelief and the result of their unbelief was disobedience. A disobedience to follow God's call into by faith, taking what he called them to take. It was a disobedience rooted and fed by unbelief. This is the case with all disobedience. It's fed by refusing to hold fast to who God is and who God's promises, who God is and what his promises are. And we, we see this connection between unbelief and sin in other places, most strikingly to me in Hebrews 3. We'll go to Hebrews 3. If you can back up, uh, Logan, to another verse 12, way back there early in the passage, it starts out, it might even be the first slide. It says, see to it, brothers and sisters. If you can go back to the very first slide that I've, I've got in that uh, bin that you have. Yeah, this is it. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed 
we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Next slide. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses and with whom he was provoked, that is the Lord, for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness and to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So if you go through this passage I just read and you look at the relationship between unbelief and disobedience, you'll see that it's, it's symbiotic. Unbelief leads to disobedience, and disobedience hardens unbelief. In verse 12, it is a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns from God. In verse 19, those who do not enter rest are those who disobeyed, and their disobedience was rooted in their unbelief. It is not enough to say, I believe Jesus, and I received his Holy Spirit, and then say, but I don't need to obey him, and I won't obey him. It's, it's not enough to say, I believe Jesus, and I've received his Holy Spirit, but I'm not going to obey him. Our, our Lord said, as plainly as, as he could say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? <laughs> like, don't bother. It is not those who call me Lord, Lord, who will be saved, but only those who do the will of my Father. But sin doesn't just happen, like, in a vacuum. It's rooted and fed by unbelief. It, sin must, before it can gain its footing in our hearts, it must turn away from God's goodness. It must refuse to look at God's promises. It must turn its back on God's help. It must turn its back on God's promise and God's warning. And so the kind of faith or belief the writer has in mind that enters God's rest is a belief that leads to trusting in his promises for help and therefore standing against our sin. A belief that finds hope and satisfaction in the promises of God. A belief that fears his warnings. And through his Holy Spirit, sin is conquered and it loses its grip on our lives. The other aspect of this Sabbath rest belief is, is this is a rest that's secured by faith that endures. It's secured by faith that endures. The Sabbath rest is not only by faith received, but by faith that endures. We saw this in verse 3, 14. We have come, watch this, in verse, verse, chapter 3, verse 14, Logan, if you can find that. It's, it's, the, it's into the next chapter. Keep going. Okay, there we go. There we go. It should be verse 14 here. Oh, I'm, Logan, I'm so sorry. I was wrong. Sorry, folks. Please forgive me for doing this to... Logan, please forgive me as well for me doing this to you. Look at verse 14. Look at this verse. This is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. D.A. Carson says, This verse is the essence of a true Christian. And, 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 you know, who, who cares? It's D.A. Carson. I don't mean like, oh, D.A. Carson. But, but he's, just, he's really worked hard on God's word for a long time. So, like, let's, he's just a guy who's really tried to be faithful, has a really giant brain, okay? And, and so we don't want to exalt him above the word of God of the Lord. But 
But he says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The author makes no apology for doing mind-stretching verb tense writing here. Do you see what he does? He, we have, past tense, celebrate, hallelujah, sing songs of salvation. We have come to share in Christ. We have, we have. If, oh, okay, what? <laughs> you just said, I, are you taking it away? No, 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 you have, you have it, you have it. If we hold our original conviction firmly to the end, present, future tense. If today, 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 I remember struggling with assurance at uh, Emmanuel Bible Church early in my Christian walk. Not that it's something to struggle with only early in your Christian walk. I, I can struggle with assurance to, to this day. But I remember walking into the pastor of discipleship, Jack Elrod or something like that, Pastor Elrod, and, and saying, I, I don't know if my salvation experience was genuine. I'm, I'm struggling to see if I did all the right things and said all the right things. And, you know, did I repent enough? Did I believe enough? And, and he just said, today, what's going on today, Alfred? Are you believing him today? Are you, are, you, are you trying to follow him today? Are you trying to love him today? Are you putting your hope in his finished work today? Are you trying to turn from sin today? Today. The author will do the very same thing in, in verse 6 of this same chapter. I don't think I have it, but, but he, there he says this. He says it in the same way. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And then he says this, same idea, same idea. Listen up. And we are his house. We are his house. Yay, hallelujah, we're his house. If, what, what? Are you taking it back? No, 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 no. Just listen. If indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting and our hope, if we hold on to this, you have it. You've got it. You've got it. If you hold on to it, keep holding on to it because you've got it. You've got it if you hold on to it. This is not new to you guys. This is the Bible, right? Paul does the same thing in Colossians 1, verse 21 of, of Colossians 1. You who were, this is not up there. Just listen to Paul's thinking here. It's the exact same thing that the Hebrews author is. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He did it. He has done it. It's done. In order to present you holy and blameless, all your sins are covered and above reproach before him. If indeed, wait, wait, wait. You just said I have it. No, 23. If indeed, verse 23, verse 1, you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. God has already done it if you continue. Jesus said the same thing in many ways himself. We've, some of you remember the, the parable of the soils. Which soil lasts is the fourth soil. The seed that lasts is the fourth seed, and that's the seed that Jesus says in so many ways. This is the real believer, the one who lasts and of course, many of you know his famous word we've said here before. He who endures to the end will be saved. Our rest in Christ is secured by faith in his finished work alone. And in putting our hope in his work, we rest from believing that our work, our character, our performance is not where our hope lies.
but we're called to keep our hope there in what he's done and who he is and not let unbelief or sin seduce, seduce us away from it because they will both seek to seduce us away from it. You know, I, I think in my life I've known a few people um, who have turned away completely from Christ and who have functionally or officially basically just dropped him. And I, I don't know one of those situations where there isn't real clear evidence that, that not just unbelief, but the seduction of sin is not involved. Like the idea that they, they just want something different than what God would allow for them to have. I, I don't think the journey to apostasy in, in the Bible is typically characterized by an intellectual battle. I think it's, it's characterized by issues of worship and issues of affection and But God is calling us to a rest. And there's tension here, you know. He says, strive to enter that rest. And we'll talk about that tension. But he is calling us to experience a rest by faith now. A rest that we can taste now in pieces and parts. A rest from fear at times. A rest from striving at times. A rest from sin at times. A rest from even having to battle sin and unbelief at times because we're so full of his spirit. But don't we all groan for that day that's still coming? Because I think the rest in this chapter, theologians think, is it a rest now that we get now? Is it a rest later? I think it's both. I think we, we taste so much of that rest now in our closeness and intimacy with the Lord, but we still struggle. That's why the striving comes, this call to strive. Someday we won't have to strive anymore for this rest. It'll just be as... It'll be like oxygen. It'll be the only thing in the air when we cross over. But right now, we strive for it. Now, this is uh, verses 12 through 14, verses 12 through 13. We're going to go through this quickly. Um, you could spend many sermons on this passage. I'm going to go through it quickly. Um, and we're at a different verse 12, Logan. Thank you so much for bearing with me here. This is the next chapter, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. This is what the Hebrews author says after all this talk of rest and striving and not falling away, okay? He says, and all these allusions to the days of creation and all the allusions to the desert wanderings and people refusing God. He, he then says this. He just drops into what can sound like a completely different issue and can sound, and, and certainly it's, it's preached very often like a different issue. But one of the reasons why I wanted us to, to look at everything around this passage is because I want you to see the connection here, okay? Verse 12, for the word of God is active, living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So w w why is the Hebrews author now talking about the word of God? Like, wh what's he trying to do here? Well, all he's been doing is throwing the word of God at you. God's promises for rest. God's warnings against falling away. God's son, who is the very word of God himself. He starts the whole book by saying in the past, God spoke to us through the prophets. Now he's speaking to us through his son. So what the author is doing is saying, listen, I'm pouring the word of God on you. I'm telling you the word of God again and again and again and again. Let me tell you something about this word. It sees you. You can't hide from it. It knows. It knows. 
whether you are holding on to God's promises. It knows whether you're holding on to it or whether you're ignoring it. It knows where you're located in its domain. God's promises don't go away when you turn from them. They're there for you if you will turn back to them. God's warnings don't go away because you ignore them. They will come to pass if you don't pay attention to them. The word of God is over you. You are not over the word of God. God's revelation of himself calls for your response of worship. It calls for your faith. It calls for your biblical fear. And that's what I believe he is trying to say right here. Everything I've been saying to you, the author is saying, for several chapters about God's promises and warnings, you are accountable to it. It sees you. It discerns you. And sometimes it discerns you and it brings encouragement to you. You read it and you feel like, oh, my heart's resonating with that. Sometimes it discerns you and it tells you you're not following God the way you should and you know you've got to give. So, so if you can get this idea of what the word of God is saying in here, then I think the happiest place in this passage this morning will make more sense to you. Because after all of this promising and all of this warning, and then God saying to you through this word right here, hey, my word is not messing around. My word is serious. I'm going to hold you accountable for trusting me or for, or for despising my glory by giving up on me and saying I'm not who I said, playing around with sin as if, it's, as if it won't burn you, giving up on my son as if you could earn your own way. I'm going to hold you accountable for all that. I want you to take my rest, and I'm going to see that you either do take my rest or you will not enter it. See how he's trying to say, I'm so serious about all this stuff that I've been saying. And it can feel, right, intense. I mean, I, I'm, if, I'm, if, it's, if what's happening is what's happening, what I'm hoping is happening, is I'm hoping you're feeling intensely like, oh, looked at, examined under the judgment of God. You should feel that way. I mean, that's what he's trying to say. Verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed. He knows all about your heart, what you think of him, what you're doing. He knows it all, and you have to give an account to him for what you've done with him and his promises. Whoo! Can I get some love here? I mean, isn't this gospel grace? Isn't this supposed to be God love me and compassion? He's rich. Well, let's go. Next slide, please. Wrong slide, wrong direction, not your fault. Here we go. Here we go. Since then, we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For any one of you that's a parent or any one of you who has a parent who's loved them well, this is what God is doing in his heart right now. His, his reflex is changing very quickly on a dime. He has been trying to sober you up and grab you by the collar and say, listen, you need me. I'm serious. I'm serious. Heaven and hell is in the balance. This life is not a joke. Are you going to follow me? Are you going to trust me? Because I'm not messing around with you. 
And then like any father, after trying to tell his son something very serious and warn them about something very critical, he pulls him in close and puts his arm around him and says, John, I love you. I love you. I'm going to help you make it. I'm not going to let you go. I care. I am all in for you. I am doing everything that I need to do to make sure that you get this. I'm not going to lose you. I'm not going to let you go. I want you to make it, but it's much more than I want you to make it. I'm sacrificing everything I have to make sure you make it. All your week, I know this is hard for you. I know it's hard to follow me. I know it's hard to believe me sometimes. I know it's hard to keep asking forgiveness for the same thing or to keep turning away. I know, I know, I know. But listen, I'm here in the room with you right now. And step by step, moment by moment, I am yours. And every ounce of power I have in the universe, I'm giving to you to make sure that you make it. because I sympathize with you. I know it's hard. It was hard for me when I came in the form of God the Son and I, and I had to say no to my wrath and I had to say no to lust and I had to say no to, the, to not getting the glory I deserved again and again and again and being betrayed and slandered and beaten. I wanted to give up. I wanted to say, God, please, if I can get out of doing what you want me to do, please get me out of this. I said that. (laughs) I went to him and he gave me help. And so he says, here's a throne of grace and mercy for this, this thing that I'm calling you to do. And, and of course, I, 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 you know, we, we have done whole sermons on just this passage. I mean, you could spend days on, on what this means. I'm, not, I'm trying to give you the bigger picture today of this, but go in and soak up the nooks and crannies of what does it mean that he sympathizes with your weaknesses and he was tempted in every way. There's not anything you can go through for the rest of the day or anything I can go through for the rest of the day that he, in category, like he didn't, he didn't get tempted by, by my son Matthew's incessant appeals for uppies. Like you probably think I'm like the biggest jerk in the world. Like, but my son Matthew will ask me for an uppie every 30 seconds. And I put him down and he wants another uppie. And I don't know what's, I, but it's be, he's super cute. But like, if he's doing the uppie thing and then John's got eggs and he's making an omelet because John's making omelets right now. And the omelet stuff, it's messy and it gets off of the floor, right? And, and so then there's omelets on the floor and there's eggs. And then Matthew comes in, Matthew not Matthew, William comes in. He has his Indiana Jones whip now. Um, for his birthday, he got an Indiana Jones kit. He has a hat, a whip, and a, and a satchel. And we did a little uh, thing for the Holy Grail, and he has the Holy Grail in there now. It's like a little cup from my parents' house. But he might come in into the kitchen, and he might just start whipping stuff. Because it's freaking crazy. It's a real whip that came in the mail, like from Toys R Us or wherever it was. Like, it's a real whip. I mean, it's, it's not like a leather whip, but it's like big and fabric-y. Like, it's super long, and it could really hurt you. And he might just start, bam, bam, bam. And John's got eggs, and Matthew's like, uppy, 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 uppy. And I taste a little bit what brandy tastes like every day for every second, you know? Like, like seriously, like, like I, I will go insane, like, with all of this pressure. And listen, 
I know it sounds funny and cute, but like it can be really, really horrible. Like all the pressure after hours and hours, you know, because I've been watching the kids a lot because of how godly I am. <laughs> no, so through my father-in-law's death and passing, watching the kids and Jen and, and just like, it, it is no different than the crucible of a lot of things in life that, that, you know, categorically you wouldn't think is cute. Like pressure at work, car accident. I mean, it, it, it just feels like there's a thousand pounds on you and you just want to give up. And what you want to give up is you, you don't want to just give up. You want to give up into sin. You want to yell at these kids. You want to make fun of them. If the other day Matthew was scream crying at me, you know, and I just... I had to confess this to Mike. I, I was so overwhelmed, I scream cried right back at him. <laughs> he was just like, ah! And I was like, ah! And I'm like, and then Marie and John came in from the piano room, and they're just like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. So I apologized to him, I sat him down, but like, in the moment, it made sense. Like, <laughs> but it was awful. You know, it was sin, and I had to ask my son for forgiveness. I can't, that can't be the record of my parenting with him, you know? Um, but, but listen, pressure. Pressure to look at a woman you shouldn't look at if you're an other sex-attracted guy. <laughs> you're in a coffee shop, and it's summertime, and I don't say anything more than that, but, but there's pressure you have to endure. You have to suffer through that to stay faithful to Jesus in that moment. You have to take hold of his promise. Where are you going to go? Pressure to just feast on anxiety and just feast on worry because you don't have the answer that you're looking for. Where are you going to go? And what this author is saying here at the tail end about sin and unbelief, he's saying they're poison. And they meet us in little and big ways. You know, may God bring Josh Harris back. I hope that he does. But I will say that what he's written and what he has said is horrifying. It's horrifying. It is the most horrifying stuff I have read that I can think of in my life. And, and, I, and I don't want to condemn him or sit here and have this big slander session and conjecture, but I want you guys to know from the guy who's still a pastor here and speaking into your lives, that what he's written and what he's saying, and may he come back to God, is the most terrifying stuff that can happen to a human being that, that I can see, that I can see. God can know better, right? Maybe God knows he was never saved to begin with and he was just caught up in this <clears throat> system of celebrity and platform and all this stuff. I didn't know that, Josh Harris. I knew a guy who knew the score on some of that craziness and knew how to recognize what real biblical Christianity was and fight to say no to the accoutrements of legalism and his own apologies and all those things. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know his heart. I can just tell you that that kind of thing is you should be horrified by it. You should be terrified by it. You should be scared to your core. But that doesn't happen in a moment. Like you don't go from, I believe in Jesus, I'm following him, he's my savior, to the next day, I'm holding my head up high. When I see those Christians, I won't be ashamed. I'm starting a new journey of unbelief. Join me, or not join me, he didn't say join me, but 
And I'm, I'm not trying to make fun of him because it's not something worthy of making fun. But you don't get there in a second, you know? You get there through little choices that go unheeded, little reminders and calls to repent that go ignored and ignored and ignored, that turn into medium ones, that go ignored and ignored, that turn into big ones. And so from God's point of view, he saves us, he preserves us. It cannot happen to his children. From our earthly point of view, we're called to strive to believe his promises. We're called to strive to hold on to Jesus Christ, our Savior. We're called to strive to enter his rest. So very quickly, three application points. Number one, and I've I've already done some of these applications in my talking, so I'll try to be quick here. Number one, let us fear. Let us fear. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Let us fear. Who wants a fear-based religion, right? Well, actually, I do. Like, if hell is real and judgment is coming and I, and, and, and I need to pay attention to God's warnings, I guess I do. Like, I might say that to John. I, you know, my, uh, William is now the age. He's outside in the front yard. And, and I might say, <clears throat> William, you see those cars coming up the street? I've said this before, so bear with me. Those cars, I'll tell him, those cars can kill you. They killed my first cousin when he was seven years old. I had a cousin, Mark Cassidy. He was riding his bike. He hit by a car. I tell all my kids about my sweet cousin, Mark, who I believe is with the Lord. He got smashed into the pavement and he died. And I tell every one of my kids... You know, imagine one of my kids turning around, Dad, I don't want a fear-based view of the street. You're really orienting me around fearful things. You're manipulating me with fear, (laughs) you know? That's the age we live in. Listen, William, I'm trying to protect you. Those cars will kill you. So, yeah, I want a little fear in my religion. (laughs) I, I I don't want to be obsessing about it every single moment of my life. But fear God. Respect what he says. Pay attention. Jesus poured out his blood. The 12 men who saw him visibly, they poured out their blood, except for maybe John. To tell you, fear God. It matters whether you believe in him or not. If you fear God in the right way, you will have nothing else to really fear. Fear is only bad when you have nothing to fear. (laughs) When I tell William to fear cars, I'm doing the opposite of manipulating him. God is doing the opposite of manipulating you when he tells you, be afraid of unbelief. Be afraid of sin. Number two, strive to enter his rest. Riddle me this, Batman. When is striving not the enemy of resting? When is striving not the enemy of resting? When you are striving to depend on someone else. When is striving not the enemy of resting? When you are striving to depend on someone else to support you. Someone else to be and do for you what you cannot be and do for yourself. When you are fighting not to earn your salvation, but to leave Jesus for it. When you are fighting not to live fully by him, by your power, but to live fully for him by trusting fully in his power. Depending on him daily, moment by moment, for his forgiveness and his power. That's what Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 is all about. Forgiveness and power. The door is open every day, all day, 24 hours, seven days a week. It never closes. Jesus ripped the curtain. Come in. Forgiveness and power. Forgiveness and power. Mercy and grace. Mercy for your failures. Grace for what you need that you don't have. Forgiveness and power. 
Finally, verse three, or, or point three, encourage one another daily. I'm, I'm not good at this. I need to get better at this. And John and Deb are really good at helping me see that just by the way they live and the way they talk when they come to the prophecy mic. It seems to be the song that's on their hearts so often. Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today. The whole passage I've read today has a corporate character to it. Let us, let us, let us. We must, we must, we must. We all, we all, we all. That's not an accident. We need each other. I need you. I need friends. I, I had a triad call. We'll talk about triads. We're going to talk about triads uh, in, another, another week soon. But I had a triad call with, with Josh and Ryan this week. And, you know, those guys, like, they encourage me. And they, I'm a pastor. I get, I get paid. I'm formal. I'm a dad with kids. They're, they're, Josh has a, has a kid. But, but they, I, I just get the sense that, like, they don't understand, like, what they mean to me. Like, I'm just saying that publicly. Like, you do not understand what your friendship means to me. Like, when I could call you on, was it two, Wednesday? And, and dump on you. Like, you guys did some dumping on me. You know, they both confessed some things. But I dumped on them. I dumped on Mike a few minutes ago. I dumped on Jim two days ago. I need to dump on people. And, and that could be maybe what it feels like. It just feels like, but man, we need each other. We need each other so much. So the author is telling you, not just in a sentimental hallmarky way, he's saying, no, 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 no. This is part of you striving. Encourage one another. Encourage one another. That's why we do small groups. And we're going to talk about the Adam small groups we've been talking about in praying. But that's why Kevin leads a small group. That's why Mike leads a small group. That's why we're going to talk about triads. But we, have, we can create these formal structures you get into. But you don't have to have those things. You can call people. You can see people. You can come to Tuesday night prayer. You can come to Samson Society. You can go to your care group. But, but the, you can come there and just sit cold and not engage with anyone. But the author is saying encourage, encourage, strengthen, strengthen. You need each other. So who are you encouraging? Who are you looking out for? Who's looking out for you? Who's looking out for you? If that's not happening in your life and you're in this church, come and talk to me. We have to help make that happen. And, and we're going to talk in a couple of weeks about being more pronounced. I, I've told you guys before, I really feel like the Lord prophetically is saying, well, let me be careful. I believe, my best sense is, I want to be careful about how hard I push the pretzel on prophetic words that I get subjectively. But I'm asking other, you guys to pray about this. I do believe that the Lord is saying to us, get your house ready. Get this little house ready for the people I want to bring to it by paying better attention to the people in it. That's what I'm hearing from the Lord. And I'm seeing it in his word, confirmed. Get your house ready for the people I want to bring to it. That's Jesus' evangelism plan is us loving each other really well. Did you know that? He says in in John 13, they will know you are my disciples. They will know that I'm really in your life by how you love one another. And then he says in John 17, he prays to the Father. He seals it with a prayer. He says, Lord, let them be one like we're one so the world will know that you sent me. There's other evangelism plans like go out and preach, right? But, but the, it's not going to stick with people if they don't come in and experience it happening. And so I, I really believe that God is calling us to flex our muscles stronger of loving one another so that, so that we can experience that together. And so that when, when these little people come in from the outside, the Caleb's and the Lunas, they, they're able to get involved in, in love relationships quicker. So that's it, guys. That's all I got. Strive to enter the rest. Let's not give up. Let's not give up on Jesus. Let's hold on to each other and help each other hold on to him. Amen.